the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. I am not Maureen McGrath, but I'm her technical producer, Leonardo Coelho. Please join Dr. Dimitri Baranov and Maureen McGrath as they discuss bariatric procedures and all the steps it endures. Plus, National Director of Course Radiator, Larry Gifford, elaborates on a study that shows that sexual activity is quite good for people with Parkinson's disease. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Recently, a study revealed that obesity was a major risk factor for COVID-19. And joining me on the line is... Dr. Dmitry Baranov. He's an MD, PhD, and director of bariatric surgery at Saratoga Hospital in Saratoga Springs, New York. Good evening, Dr. Baranov. How are you doing? Good evening, Maureen. Doing great. Wonderful to have you. Uh, this is a very important subject, and a recent study revealed that after advanced age, the next strongest predictor of suffering complications from COVID-19 is severe obesity. Now, obesity is a major problem and, and a disease, quite frankly, in North America. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about why it's important that we destigmatize obesity, we understand it as a disease, and why is it that it's related to uh, more complications as a result of COVID-19? Well, uh, obesity is a, is a serious health condition, and it was uh, remarkably that it was only recently, in 2013, recognized by American Medical Association, uh, Association as a disease. Uh, the prevalence of obesity in the United States is about 40%. So almost um, 100 million people in the United States are affected uh, by obesity. And if you count... Uh, if you uh, count people who are overweight, so overweight plus obesity is almost 70% of the population. So it's a major problem. And they have, the patients with obesity have multiple associated health issues, including heart disease, diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea. And who, what, what defines obesity? How do you know if you're obese? Uh, there is a there is a so-called body mass index or BMI that is calculated by weight in kilograms divided by height in meters square. So if you do the calculations, weight in kilograms divided by height in meters square, you come up with a number. So normal weight is roughly bet- or normal BMI rather is roughly between eighteen and a half to twenty four. Uh, 0.9, so roughly 25. That is normal weight. If BMI is over 25, the person is considered overweight. If the body mass index is over 30, the person is considered obese. And over 40, they are considered morbidly obese. There is another term that is called so super obesity, when body mass index is over 50. Wow. I had a patient, I often do a BMI in my clinical practice with my patients and I have a sexual function, sexual health clinic. And I did a BMI on a patient who was, um, he was 5'7 and he weighed 203 pounds and his BMI was 32. 
uh, he had some health problems from hypertension, um, borderline. He was he had been told by his doctor he was pre-diabetic and he was having sexual health issues. Uh, he had a hard time believing that that was associated with his sexual function. He just kept saying to me, "Just just help me with my premature ejaculation." <laughs> That was his problem. Um, just give me that. I'm not interested in any of the other things. He'd also had a history in his family of uh, the the men dying by the age of 65, and he was about 59 years of age. So, mm-hmm. how? Uh, why is it that people have difficulty understanding um, their the importance of managing their weight, eating? Uh, in, in, a tr- in a nutritious fashion um, that is self-satisfying? And, and is there some connection to, to the brain? And, and um, what is that gut-brain connection? Well, absolutely. Uh, well, t- uh, th- that patient of yours that you just described, he definitely needs help. And uh, that is a, uh, a patient who would benefit tremendously from managing his um, uh, his um, class one, it's called class one obesity, BMI of 32 is class one obesity. And um, uh, those associated health problems are associated, uh, those health problems that are associated with, uh, with his obesity can be controlled or maybe even uh, cured uh, by addressing his obesity. Um, there is a, a, the problem is a lack of education in general population, and um, unfortunately, even some medical professionals still to, to this day see obesity as some sort of uh, patient's choice or person's choice or some sort of weakness rather than the disease. Right, and they're just overeaters. And it approached as the disease, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, <clears throat> So, so that that patient of yours can can benefit tremendously from from medical intervention. But it's is it up to the patient to then take the advice, take the education? Um, the interest was more, and, and sex is a great motivator, and I find this a lot in my clinical practice. In addition to, um, you know, patients will tell me that their doctor said they need to lose five or ten pounds. And when I do a bit of a calculation and tell them they need to do 28, you know, they need to lose 28 to often 48 pounds, or, or I might start out gently and say, even if you lose 15 pounds, that will drop your blood pressure, you know, one to three millimeters of mercury. Um, is it up to them to start that pathway or is it just impossible for some people to do? I would, I always like to give the patient the mod, some modest goal, knowing that they can accomplish that goal. And then once they, are, they, once they accomplish this small modest goal, they feel more motivated and encouraged. And, uh, and we just can continue going that health, healthier pathway. Right. So you, we can control weight through diet and exercise mainly, and mainly diet, quite frankly, eating a more nutritious diet. Uh, we're seeing people who have lower socioeconomic backgrounds, they have a tendency toward obesity. Is that correct? Because they have less access to more nutritious food. Uh, that's true. That's a, that's a true statement. 
and also sometimes uh, unfortunately has they have lack uh, less access to healthcare professionals and uh, and uh, lack of uh, knowledge about um, what obesity is and uh, that it needs to be um, addressed. Right. But so obesity does not discriminate. And in fact, people in the higher socioeconomic status can actually, which is my basically my clinical practice. These are people of means, typically. Um, And so they and oftentimes they are overweight or obese and it contributes to their sexual dysfunction is what I find. Um, So why is it that people get this disease, this medical condition of obesity? What What's the contributing factors? What's the etiology? So uh, studies have shown uh, that that about 60, 60 plus percent of variability in body mass index is attributable to inheritance. Hmm. So uh, of the total variability, uh, about 40 percent is due to genes that control food intake. About 10 to 12 percent are due to metabolic rate. So that is uh, that that is inheritance. That's uh, a lot of it is inheritance. That's what we get uh, from from the from our parents. So does that mean that, is, you know, this patient and many patients will say to me, you know, my whole family loves to eat and, and they're all overweight and that's just the way it is. Does that mean that you're genetically predisposed and you cannot do anything about it? You're, yes, you, you, you are genetically predisposed, but there are multiple things that can be done. As, as we mentioned before, Diet and exercise is the first step. Uh, there, is, there are weight loss medications that are currently on the market that uh, that can uh, that can help, uh, and those are the safe medications that uh, that can be used long term. And uh, uh, the, that patient that you mentioned with a BMI of 32 with erectile dysfunction and uh, uh, hypertension would be an ideal candidate for uh, weight loss medication in addition to diet and exercise. So they wouldn't start with diet and exercise first from a conservative approach, and then if that wasn't working, try the medication? Or would you go with the medication combined with the diet and exercise first? When the patient, when the patient is, is, is uh, class 1 obesity, I would I would not hesitate to start the patient on 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 weight loss medication. Interesting. In fact, even in fact, even with patients uh, with a BMI as low as 27, if they have obesity associated comorbid conditions like hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, I would start them on on weight loss medications. Very interesting. You know, a lot of patients, and I'm not sure if it's the uh, demographic, the geography, uh, they are anti-medication or this this anti-big pharma attitude as well. But so many patients, and that's why they come to me, because they say, I don't want to go on medication. But then again, they're not motivated enough to take this on by themselves either. Uh, so for that patient who right. doesn't want to take medication, what would you suggest? Uh, there is uh, so diet and exercise is the first step. 
uh, now there are there is modern um, endoscopic uh, treatment of uh, uh, of obesity that's called intragastric balloon. They are becoming increasingly more popular in North America. They've been around the world and in, in South America and Europe for years, but over the last uh, approximately five years, uh, they becoming they've becoming more popular in the United States. Joining me on the line is Dr. Dmitry Baranov. He is a the director of bariatric surgery at Saratoga Springs Hospital. He's an MD, PhD, and he joins me on the line from New York City. We're talking about obesity because there was a recent study that demonstrated the importance of obesity in treating hospitalized patients. The study is factors associated with hospitalization and critical illness among 4,103 patients with COVID-19 disease in New York City. The authors are Horowitz and Petrilli, and it revealed that obesity is second to advancing age when suffering complications from uh, uh, from COVID-19. Uh, Dr. Baranov, thank you so much for staying on the line with me. Uh, we were talking a little bit about um, patients with obesity, a known medical condition, and you started to talk about a balloon that is inserted into a patient's stomach to help decrease their appetite, I would imagine, as, as what the medications that you referred to as well, um, that I imagine that they also decrease a person's appetite. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, mm-hmm. go ahead. So, so intragastric balloon is, uh, uh, has been approved in, uh, by, by FDA within the last uh, five years, and it's becoming uh, increasingly popular um, in, in the United States um, for patients with uh, class one obesity, specifically with patients uh, uh, with a body mass index between 30 and 40. Um, this is a, a one-year program that starts with a placement of uh, uh, intragastric balloon in the patient's stomach. That's a, that is an outpatient procedure that is done on the sedation. It takes about 15 minutes. And there are different types of the balloon, uh, of the balloons, and uh, uh, some of them are filled with, with saline, some of them are filled with air. But the principle behind uh, the balloon is that it stays in the stomach, it occupies the space, so the patient's portion size decreases. Additionally, the balloon creates the, uh, puts a stretch on the wall of the stomach, and there are sensors or receptors on, in the wall of the stomach that sense that stretch, and they send the signal to the brain, I am full, I am full, I am full, and the brain shuts off the hunger mechanism. And the third mechanism, how the balloon works, it slows down the gastric emptying. So after the, after the meal, the patient feels feels full longer, and he is not. Uh, the patient is not as hungry in between the meals. So the balloon stays in the patient's stomach for six months, and during this first six months of the one-year balloon program, the patient is working with a dietitian and exercise physiologist, um, adjusting their diet and doing exercise, and they lose weight. At the end of uh, six months, uh, the balloon is removed from the stomach, so it's another uh, procedure that takes uh, about 15 minutes, uh, 
and the patient can essentially go home uh, once they're awake from, uh, from anesthesia, and they continue working with a dietitian and exercise physiologist for the next uh, six months, continue losing weight. Uh, so it's an excellent choice, non-surgical uh, choice for patients with a, with a body mass index between 30 and 40. Are there any adverse events or complications? Like, is constipation an issue for people? Constipation is not an issue. Uh, there are there are two um, potential complications uh, that uh, are described. Uh, one is pancreatitis that uh, um, that uh, can be caused by intragastric balloon. Uh, it is very rare. Another potential complication is uh, spontaneous inflation when the balloon uh, increases in size and uh, the patient would have abdominal distension and abdominal pain. If that complication happens, balloon needs to be removed. Um, and uh, uh, it, it is also very rare. Um, and there is a uh, balloon can leak. And if the balloon leaks the fluid, um, the patient's urine would uh, change in color because the fluid that uh, that the balloon is filled in, uh, we add some uh, uh, dye in the in the fluid. So if the balloon leaks, then the patient's urine would change the color to green, and that indicates that the balloon is leaking and needs to be removed. But those adverse effects are very rare. In fact, the complications uh, from the balloon are on par with colonoscopy or even less than complications from colonoscopy. So it's a very safe procedure. Right. And are there any other surgical procedures, um, other uh, more invasive surgical procedures that um, people can undergo who have obesity? So it's the, um, I would not put balloon into surgical category. I would put it as an endoscopic intervention. But yes. there are... Uh, bariatric weight loss surgeries that are performed laparoscopically through minimally invasive approach. Uh, there are uh, three most commonly done uh, bariatric procedures, um, uh, laparoscopic Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, also known as gastric bypass or bypass, laparoscopic vertical sleeve gastrectomy or gastric sleeve or sleeve, and laparoscopic adjustable gastric banding or band. So um, there are other surgical procedures out there, but what those three are most commonly done procedures in the United States and in the world. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Dr. Baranov. Dr. Dmitry Baranov, MD, PhD, Director of Bariatric Surgery, Saratoga Hospital, Saratoga Springs, New York. Uh, thanks so much. He's been my guest, and I really appreciate uh, your contribution to the program. My pleasure, Maureen. Very little information is out there about the role of sexual activity in neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, ALS, and others. Any sexual health research that is done is usually related to sexual dysfunction. Well, I'm delighted to say that the National Director of AM Radio at Chorus Entertainment, father, husband, creator of the podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, and a man who has been diagnosed with this neurogenerative disease at a young age, is here with me in the studio tonight to talk about 
a study that demonstrates that sexual activity is good for men with Parkinson's disease. Thank you so much for joining me, Larry. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks, Maureen. Larry Gifford is here in the studio with me. So this is an interesting study, uh, and they say it affects men more than women, but they also surveyed twice as many men as women, so I think the, the, sur- the survey may not be uh, as valid as they'd like it to be because of that. That's right. There's always flaws in these studies. But do you think men uh, participate in sex or maybe a little bit more interested in sex at different ages, especially as people age? Some women may have menopausal issues or postmenopausal issues, and that may decrease their interest in sex. I mean, there's lots we can talk about around that. Well, for sure. And in Parkinson's specifically, uh, which is this study is talking about, um, there, there are drugs that cause hypersexuality. Uh, so if you take the um, common uh, um, class of drugs known as dopamine agonists, which includes Mirapax and Requip, uh, uh, th- th- this causes sexual hyperactivity. So and I know people who've, who've had that issue be, because of those drugs. So it, and that's, we don't know from the study if those men were on those drugs. The other thing we don't know is are they exercising and are they feeling better? Are their motor skills improving because they're also exercising, which everybody's asked to do? That's right. And so what are some of the critical aspects of this study uh, that was done? We had 355 patients, 67% were men who answered the question, um, initially, and 50 to 60 percent of the men answered a question around sexual health. Um, and men were more likely than women to be sexually active at all of the time points. And after multivariable and logistics analyses, the results showed that at two years, male patients who were sexually active were less likely to have non-motor symptoms, especially apathy, and also gastrointestinal symptoms. So I think we have uh, a lot of myths around sex. You know, older people don't have sex. Uh, People with particular medical conditions don't have sex. Young people don't have sex. People with neurodegenerative diseases don't have sex. But this might shed a bit of light for healthcare practitioners. Well, and keep in mind that um, all of the participants um, dropped off somewhat from sexual activity over the course of those two years. Yes. So it wasn't like it increased. No. So the, it, you know, it's, it, and the other thing that, that's interesting is that they were, on average, 57 years old at onset. Uh, so I think that's important to just know how old we're talking. That's not that old. No, uh, this is on the younger side when we think about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, because Parkinson's onset is usually around 60. So this isn't even surveying the people that are true Parkinson's. These are, these are younger onset uh, folks. Not considered young onset per se, which is usually under 50, especially in scientific studies, but 60 is the average age for onset for Parkinson's. Yes. So, so it is on the younger end of that. And so they there would be probably more inclined to have sexual relations and have more sex. Um, and I think men are more likely to talk about their sexual activity than women. And maybe that's just me being a, a you know a biased man. I don't know. But and I, I'm not in rooms a lot where women talk about it, but I am with men. <laughs> women are talking about shoes in those rooms, okay? <laughs> Is that a uh, euphemism? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, there are so many myths, as I said, around sex, like older people don't have sex. And so oftentimes health care providers don't ask the question, how important do you think it is to ask the question about sexual activity for patients with neurodegenerative diseases? It's very important. And every time I go to the neurologist, there's a survey I take, and one of the questions or two of the questions is about that, but there's never any follow-up. And I can tell you I've marked different bubbles at different times depending on my situation, right. and there's been no follow-up, which which, which is the miss. So they need to take these surveys and, and compare them from quarter to quarter or every six months or every year and go, oh, so I see this has changed. And, and that's not happening. That's right. And many healthcare practitioners, I know this, are uncomfortable around the subject of sex. They're uncomfortable discussing it with their patients. They're uncomfortable uh, because they think it might be inappropriate. They're, they're afraid of litigation. Uh, they don't know what to ask. And even if they know what to ask, they don't know what to say. This is where sex education is so important. So what would you say, Marie? Well, every person that comes to my clinical practice is asked that question. Or, you know, I, I first give permission. Um, I ask permission, sorry. I ask permission, is it okay? Even though they're coming to me, if they may have low sexual desire or they might be in a sexless marriage, I will say I will be asking you a series of sexual health questions. You don't have to answer any or all of them. Um, and you can stop answering at any time. And, and then I ask the question, you know, are you sexually active? Oftentimes I have to have them define what sexual activity means because it means something different for different people. And so it's around intimacy for some, which touching, it's holding hands, it's kissing, and for others it's uh, penetrative sex. And so there's a variety. And sure. so you need to talk about, about that as well. So if you, if you were a, a person with Parkinson's, and you wanted to talk about that with your doctor, how would you bring it up? You know, that's a challenge as well because patients expect, according to research, patients expect the physicians to bring it up and the physicians expect the patients, but honestly hope they don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's I'm so bit, funny, it's sad. It is, it is. I, I'm a bit of an outlier, but if I were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, I would certainly want to address that uh, my sexuality as part of my overall assessment. It's as important as my cardiovascular health and respiratory health and, and movement um, because people with Parkinson's disease have movement disorders or tremors. And so are there any strategies that will help me to continue being sexual with my partner? Um, you know, what can I do? Are there any medications that might help? You know, as a woman, many women haven't addressed their perimenopausal or menopausal issues like painful sex. And so if I were a patient with Parkinson's disease, I might ask, are there any medications or treatments that I can use to decrease the pain? Well, that's the other thing. If you're talking about uh, people who are 57 years old, those women are likely going through menopause or have been through menopause and likely not as sexually active as they once were. Is that accurate? That is accurate, but it's often due to a treatable condition. Yeah. And so it may be due to some of the symptoms that they have. They're associated with menopause, night flashes, hot sweats, so they lose out on sleep, insomnia. Uh, increased heart rate, sounds like fatigue. Parkinson's. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now you know what we've been living with. Um, fatigue and also vaginal dryness and painful sex. And so oftentimes, you know, I, I see patients with spinal cord injury and they'll be in their perimenopausal and menopausal years and they'll say, my spinal cord injury is worse because they are having recurrent urinary tract infections, for example. And I say, you are a person first and a spinal cord injured person second. So this is something that, you know, you're a woman first, basically. So you 
you need to treat that which is likely causing your recurrent urinary tract infections, and that's estrogen, you know, loss of estrogen in the urogenital tract. Well, here's the other thing. It takes two to tango. It sure does. So uh, (laughs) if you're not the person with Parkinson's, then you're the partner in Parkinson's, and uh, they call them caregivers. And Mm. if you're labeled a caregiver, Mm. do you look at the person with Parkinson's as sexually as maybe you once did? And if you're a woman, probably not as much. Maybe it's easier. But for a man, if you call me a caregiver to my wife, then suddenly I feel sort of a medical role mm-hmm. in taking care of you. And, uh, and maybe, maybe that's inhibiting sexual activity. I don't know. Absolutely. You know, and caregiving is exhausting, you know, especially given the length of time that one is a caregiver. And it's, it's such an unfortunate term to use the term caregiver, but it's it sounds true. so convalescent. And like, my, like my wife is a caregiver, but like, but I'm she's working, your wife, but she's my wife and she's, she's mom to our child. And she's, she's a hundred other things other than my caregiver. I, I don't need a lot of help right now. I'm going to in the future. But we like to consider ourselves partners in Parkinson's as opposed to her being the caregiver. Like we're, we're helping each other through this. Absolutely. But it can be exhausting. And just yesterday, I, or Friday, sorry, I had a patient in my clinical practice and she was about 78 and her husband is 80 and he's been diagnosed with Parkinson's and he's had it for about seven or eight years and she's exhausted. Sure. And they're not sexually active. Um, in part because his symptoms are pretty severe and they're having difficulty getting them under control. And and also she's exhausted and fatigue is the number one reason for low sexual desire in women. She would like to be sexual, and this is the thing. People continue to want to be sexual as they age. This is certainly something I've learned from my clinical practice. Well, it makes sense to me. And it doesn't matter what medical condition anybody has. It doesn't mean... a shutdown of your sexuality. Yeah, and I think the unfortunate thing about this study is that they the, the results were were skewed towards the men, and so the headlines were like, it helps men. People were like, what about the women? Like, I saw that <laughs> online. Like, didn't they have enough money to survey women, too? And it, well, it, the, there's a paucity of research <laughs> for women out there, women's health, women's sexual health, so they always go to the men. We just started researching women about 15 to 20 yeah. years ago anyway, so... But but I, I I think you know it, this is this is a good sort of icebreaker to begin to talk about sex and Parkinson's. Uh, it's something certainly that's not brought up a lot. Although there are there are experts that uh, around the world that talk about uh, sexuality and Parkinson's. I, I've interviewed one on the podcast uh, when life gives you Parkinson's, uh, Gila Bronner, who mm-hmm. is uh, fantastic uh, and very frank and uh, fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's I think that's the way you have to be with sexuality. And there's also a placid model. Um, so asking permission, giving limited information, providing specific instructions, and then sending people off to more intensive therapy if they need that. I just finished a seven-city tour across Canada educating OBGYNs, so mm-hmm. obstetrician and gynecologists, psychiatrists, and a few general practitioners about female sexual function. And, uh, you know, they said they, they don't have the information. They didn't learn it in medical school. They would really like to help women in this area and ultimately helping men as well. Um, so it's a critical subject, and it's so tied to health, is, is I think, uh, the, the message uh, from this little study at the end of the day. Is there a best resource people can go to if they want more information, Maureen? Well, they can go to my website, backtothebedroom.ca, and they can go to your podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, which is phenomenal, and I've learned a tremendous amount, and so have my patients. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, do it every week.
You're very welcome. <laughs> like the pun, like the pun, Larry. Okay, well, thank you so much. That's Larry Gifford, National Director of AM Radio at Chorus Entertainment, father, husband, creator of the podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, and a man who has been living with this diagnosis for a little while now. For at least a decade. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, all right, love to have you back because we can talk a Anytime. lot more about this. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.